This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love It podcast. We have just wrapped up our four-part series on Chinua Achebe and his groundbreaking book, Things Fall Apart. Generally, between books, we take a moment to look at a poem or a shorter piece that in some way connects to the longer piece that we've been discussing. And this week and next week, both, we want to discuss W.B. Yeats, the Irish poet who wrote the poem, The Second Coming, from which Achebe took the title of his book. And Christy, what can you tell us about this poet beyond the fact that he won the Nobel Prize for literature in 1923? Should we really like him? And uh, bottom line, is he born for those of us who aren't poetry heads? <laughs> well, as you know, I'm always trying to pitch the idea that poetry is for everyone, and you don't have to be a melodramatic person caught up in your feels to value some poetry. I know that's a tough sell. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I have this arduous task that I think I can make the case. This year, we're starting a new year in school, by the way, here in Memphis, Tennessee. We're going to actually start the school year studying the Irish poet William Butler Yeats, even though I primarily teach American literature. But Yeats is on my mind, first of all, because we're doing this podcast. But a bigger reason is that this poem that we're doing today is an occasional poem, and an occasional poem is when you're moved by an occasion and you want to record how this particular occasion affected you or makes you feel. Uh, my students are coming back to school, as are everyone all over the world, after being locked up for a whole year, sometimes a year and a half. And the first thing that we're going to do is write an occasional poem, and we're going to model it after Yeats's poem. Of course, if you're a teacher and interested in this assignment, you can find it on our website under the teaching materials. But otherwise, here's my point. Yeats was a guy who knew how to say things that we feel. And here he conveys strong emotions about something that we know well, 
identity politics. But Yates has become popular because he can express things and we can identify with them. And this has been going on for a while. The Coen brothers were inspired by him in their movie No Country for Old Men. He's shown up a couple times in Cheers episodes. The band The Smiths have alluded to him. And even President Joe Biden has talked about Yates in a speech on foreign policy, if you can believe that. So, uh, to answer your question, if we should like him, you know, that's always difficult to say. But honestly, uh, I think there's something here. He's a little bit difficult to dissect. He's from a different part of the world. He's from a different generation, and he has lots of symbols. But uh, if you can get past all that... (laughs) That sounds like a lot of disclaimers to me. I know, but if you can get past on that, oh. and lots of people do, you can enjoy his poetry. They do show up in a lot of those brainy quotes you find on the internet. Uh, I guess that's true. Uh, I actually just saw a meme on the LinkedIn that quoted him. <laughs> yeah. Yates has such a large body of work. He's very complicated. We could spend a long time talking about him, and we're going to spend two weeks. But this week, we're going to talk about the poem... Easter 1916, and next week we'll move on to the poem that Achebe used in his book, The Second Coming. That one's harder to understand than the one that we're doing today. It's apocalyptic and complex. So we're going to start off with something a little bit uh, more uh, simple. Yeats uh, has a lot that you can say. His romantic life in general was fairly complicated, and we'll get to talk about that. <laughs> Isn't that always true of poets? I know, but he takes it up a notch. No. Uh, you know, his marriage was even strange. Uh, his wife's name was George. She had this interesting ability to di- dictate messages from the other side, as in ghosts. Oh, and by the way, she was 18 when they met, and he was 46. So that's just a little to expect from next week. Uh, But we have some romantic uh, intrigue this week as well. I can see how that age gap might turn some heads, especially at the turn of the 20th century. Um, So can we expect symbols and philosophy here? That's some of it. But also his body of work is so large, it's complicated. There's a lot of variety. He started out talking about myths and the beauty of his home country, but he didn't stay there. His work has a lot of romance in it. It's political. It's spiritual. And he didn't just write poems either. He wrote plays. But in all things, there's one thing that you can always say about his work. His work is Irish. And by virtue of being Irish, there's going to be magic and mystery embedded because that's the history and culture of Ireland. Those of us who don't share the heritage of the leprechauns and the fairies and the magic are at a disadvantage for never having visited the amazing end of the rainbow we call Ireland. Well, I I know that's a sore subject with you. And to get personal for a moment, um, Christy and I have gone with students on um, EF, or Education First Trips, uh, several times to Europe over the last few years. In 2020, we had planned a trip with the students from here in the Memphis area to tour Ireland and Scotland. Uh, We were finally going to go, but of course, COVID struck the world and that got canceled. And uh, Ireland is still on the bucket list. Hopefully, we'll be lucky uh, soon to discover ourselves the beauty and mystery of that place. But until then, we live vicariously through Yates' 
and you too, and even most recently, the Dairy Girls. <laughs> yes, I'm not ashamed to admit that we watch and love that show. Uh, who doesn't? It's a fun show. But really, it contextualizes in funny ways a lot of the ethnic challenges that Yates was talking about and Ireland still faces in the show Poor James McGuire is English-born, but he has to attend an all-girls school for his safety because of his accent. His English accent. <laughs> yes. mm-hmm. They're making fun, but we all know, of course, that racial tension and identity politics can get ugly in a hurry. But making the Achebe connection, it's really not surprising to me that Yates caught Achebe's connection. There's so much that they have in common. Well, they they are from two very different places in the world. How do you mean that? Well, first of all, both of them were men really caught between two cultures. And this is something that we don't think about if you're not from Europe or Great Britain, and we don't have it in our the forefront of our minds, that the Irish and the English are not the same people group. The Irish are de- descended from the Celts, and the English are Anglo-Saxon. The Irish, like the Igbo, had a different language for centuries. And in Yeats's day, when he visited the, the countryside, the language of the heart language of the people was not English. The Irish are Catholic. The English are Protestant. But the Irish are also animistic. And in many ways, especially the country people, this was the culture that enchanted Yeats as a child, as did the animism of the Igbo for Achebe. Of course, the largest similarity between these two men is that they both lived with colonialism and independence. Yates lived through the Irish independence, as Achebe did the Nigerian one, and they both experienced the violent transition of post-colonialism. Again, uh, something a lot of the world forgets about. I mean, we think of colonialism in terms of Africa and Asia and the Americas, but the English efforts to colonize Ireland really date to the 1500s. So we are talking about a long-term antagonism and a very complicated history. I know. Those of us in the Americas don't even know what 1500s looks like. (laughs) Uh, William Butler Yeats was born in Dublin. That's in Ireland in 1865. But he comes from an English Protestant household. His father was a promising middle-class lawyer. So that already should tell you you're ready for some political conflict. <laughs> yes, and in 1865, uh, what that meant for Americans was the Civil War. Uh, but for those in Ireland, there was another horrific crisis before that. I mean, just like the the uh, staple crop in Nigeria is the yam, the staple crop of Ireland was the potato. And in 1845, um, a strain of white mold hit the potato crop in this great famine breaks out that's really well known and literally millions died of starvation and millions of others were forced to take their chances crossing the ocean and uh, you know fleeing to america and besides just the natural catastrophe of the agricultural disaster um, an even worse problem was the british government's reaction to it there was a lot of prejudice in england towards the irish which we talked a little bit about when we talked about frankenstein and mary shelley a long time ago But basically, the government uh, did too little to feed a starving population. In fact, 
a lot of absentee English landowners and uh, who those guys were basically were the hedge funders of their day. If we throw that in there, these guys went so far as to, to still export Irish food supplies and evict poor tenant farmers who couldn't pay their rent. So beyond being a natural disaster, the natural disaster brought out the worst in many people. And so as these things often do, a natural crisis turned political and uh, many more Irish, uh, even Protestant ones who otherwise may not have been political people began to see the importance of self-rule in Ireland. And uh, many who called Ireland home, whether they were ethnically Irish or ethnically English, began to really strongly support political changes that would be really costly. And this, of course, would be Yeats's family's case, except they have a personal twist. Yeats's father, who I told you was a middle-class lawyer, decides to leave Dublin and move to London to become an artist. Uh. <laughs> That feels slightly irresponsible. Well, his wife thought so, too. William's mother, because she came from a rich, well-to-do family from the country, was not a fan of urban London, was not a fan of the bohemian lifestyle, and didn't really like being poor. So much so, (laughs) I know, she couldn't deal with it, and she breaks down emotionally. She goes into depression, basically becomes bedridden, ultimately drops out and dies. So we have these children who, like many of us, are dropped into multiple cultures and are somewhat displaced. We have little William, his brother Jack, and they have two sisters. So they live in this household with parents who basically hate each other, for the most part in poverty, but they have this wealthy side of their family who they get to visit in Ireland in the summers in a town called Sligo. And during the year, Yates lived this impoverished London slum lifestyle as the Irish poor kid with the funny accent. But in the summer, he could go to visit his grandparents in their fancy house in Sligo. And that's on a nice town in the coast. But Sligo is in a Catholic area. So even though uh, he can identify with the people of the community because he's from there, he's not from the same ethnic group, nor does he have the same religious background. He's the Protestant outsider kid from London, so you're yep. never one. <laughs> Except that he's not even really Protestant either, is he? <laughs> no, he really isn't. His father's this bohemian art guy who had basically, you know, disregarded all, any form of Christianity. And at that time, you know, that's not a that's not a small thing. And maybe that's why, you know, for all of Yeats's life, he's very interested in animism and the folklore of the Irish. In Sligo, he learned about magic, literally. And we know that he loved all this because he wrote about it, you know, all of his life. He talked about people that knew about magic and ghosts and could swear they'd seen fairies. And he gathered up these stories in his head and he used them for inspiration in a lot of his writing. Well, like we talked about last week, um, lots of people all around the world are animistic. So it is possible that the uh, cultural tradition of the people in Ireland also in some ways connects to several beliefs of the Ibu. Yeah, I think that's probably likely. I can't say I'm an expert in either one, but Irish mythology certainly has a pantheon of gods. They have a connection with their ancestors. So 
Yates was definitely an animist, which we'll talk more about next week when we talk about his relationship with his wife in the serious piece, The Second Coming. But even here in his early career, we see a lot of fanciful stories. One famous poem is called The Stolen Child, and it's about fairies that steal human children. (laughs) (laughs) Well, oh, and by the way, I think Yates really did believe in fairies. It kind of reminds me of William Blake. In fact, a lot of Yates' stuff leans heavily on the spiritual side, kind of like William Blake's did. One time, someone asked him if he believed in fairies, and he responded with an interesting response. I can't remember word for word, but the gist of it was that none of us really know what we believe until we're put to the test, and so we might all believe in this kind of thing. He said our behaviors say more about what we believe than what we say, and how we act sometimes elicits an interesting response. Uh, I guess he's wanting to say that all of us believe in some things that we won't own. (laughs) Uh, We claim to not believe in ghosts until we step into a haunted house. And then no matter what we say, we run out like crazy people. Yeah, I think it's exactly something like that. W.H. Auden wrote a poem eulogizing Yeats years later, and he referenced this part of Yeats, and he called it his silliness. He says, you were silly like us. And though it's strange to admit that you believe in fairies, and some may say it's silly, Yeats is kind of honest about his own strangeness or his own silliness. And that is what people like about him. Uh, Do you think part of the reason he could feel the strangeness of things so deeply has to do with his multicultural upbringing? I I do, and I think it's just like Achebe. He definitely feels for the birth of his nation, and that's the poem Easter 1916. But before we go there, there's another part of his strangeness that I want to speak about, and that is his strange fascination with this woman named Maud Gawn. And who is that? Well, I would say Maud Gawn is what Britney Spears would call a femme fatale. (laughs) Britney Spears making an Irish appearance here. I think Yates would have liked Britney, actually. But anyway, the story goes that Yates writes this poetry book. It gets published, and it becomes pretty popular. Well, one person who noticed it was Maud Gone. She was independently wealthy, extremely wealthy, young, beautiful, well-educated, an extremely aggressive pro-Ireland political activist, and, of course, an actress. Of course. <laughs> like Yates, she was from Ireland, but, again, like Yates, she was Anglo-Irish. And I know it gets confusing to say I'm Irish, but not ethnically Irish, if that makes sense to you. But after Yates' book came out, she went to meet him in London, and they spent nine days together, enough to inspire 45 years of infatuation. (laughs) That's a long time. Exactly. He was going to be in love with her most of his life, and he proposed to her, and the numbers are mixed, but something like 18 times, seriously. And she rejected him every single time. He wrote love poem after love poem for her. He wrote plays for her to act in. That sounds a little bit like Petrarch and Laura. (laughs) He seemed to enjoy (laughs) unrequited love. I mean, the impossible woman syndrome. I know, except it's weirder than even Petrarch. (laughs) Yates was absolutely convinced Maud was this virginal, innocent rose. Even though she had two children with a married French journalist, uh, one died, the other was named Isolt. Anyway, 
Yates, in spite of the evidence that she may not be virginal, believed she was until finally, years later, she confessed, okay, this is not my adopted child. It's actually my child. (laughs) (laughs) Well, how did that go over? Well, not well at first. He quit writing her poetry. (laughs) Mm, She lost her muse status. For a moment. And then he waited until Isolt turned 22 and get this, proposed to her... The daughter. Yes. Oh, The my daughter. Gosh. I'm assuming she must have looked like her mother. You assume correctly. She looked uncannily like her mother at that age. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so are we to assume it's a physical obsession that lasted all those years? Part of it, I guess. I'm sure it would be a fascinating psychological study if people are interested in that sort of thing. He was definitely enamored with Mod Gon's beauty. But they he, they were connected spiritually. They both had a lot of the same animistic beliefs, not necessarily fairies, but they connected to the other world, things like that. He was also attracted to her because of her strong political activism. She was an extremely vocal spokesperson for the Irish homeland, something Yates really believed in, too, although he was not near as fanatical as she was. He didn't believe in the violence, and she was all about the violence. But she gave speeches. She organized protests. She did a lot of things that we think of political activists doing. And all of this was to overthrow the British rule. Let me add that in the late 1890s, uh, this would have been extremely progressive. I mean, uh, gender stereotypes were deeply entrenched during that time period, especially in Ireland. And it's unusual for a man of this period to find this kind of independence so irresistibly attractive. But yet he did. Yates was one of those men who was especially attracted to strong women. Maud Gone and her daughter weren't even the only ones. He had a deep personal relationship with another woman he actually blew off named Olivia Shakespeare, who sadly had the misfortune of being in love with him. He also was besties with a woman named Lady Augusta Gregory. She was powerful. She was another Irish nationalist who had a lot of money, and they actually helped build an Irish theater together, and she even supported him financially. Another reason I want to bring all the Maud Gone stuff up, besides the fact that it's just weird, (laughs) is that it connects to the poem Eastern 1916. The poem Eastern 1916, I've said it before, it's political, but it's also personal. And Yeats would do that kind of thing. He would take a political event or something in the world like Easter 1916, and he wrote it and connected it Personally, there are some people that think that this poem is likely the most powerful political poem ever written in the English language. So we have Maud Gone, who he's madly in love with, 1903, Marry Somebody. And this, by the way, ends the proposals for a moment. Yeah, for a moment. She marries an Irish revolutionary named Major John McBride. This is in 1903, and about this time, chaos is going to start breaking out all over the world. So before we read the poem, and I'll show you how this connects to Maud Gone and McBride and all that in a minute, tell us, put us in this place. Gary, what is Ireland like at this time period? Just in terms of Ireland alone, after the potato famine, which I cannot overemphasize how serious that was, uh, we have what has been called the land wars. 
to oversimplify, uh, in the 1800s, rural tenant farmers were starving. They couldn't pay their rents. They got evicted by uh, rich, often absentee landlords, and then violence erupted. And by this time, concessions were being made, and many tenants were buying their own property, and the Irish were making progress towards a better life, but it's a mess. And Many were still leaving for America, and many were still convinced they needed their own country. And the country is totally divided. And in 1914, Britain finally approves home rule, which means that Ireland won't be independent, but it can rule itself. And this seems great, except World War I breaks out, and home rule does not get implemented. And Yates is not really on the team radical the way Maud Gone is. Maud Gone wants complete independence and an Irish state. Yeats is for Ireland, but he believes England will keep faith and home rule will be a reality and no one will have to die. He, like many Irish people, and like a lot of us really when it comes to politics, finds himself in the middle of the road, ready for compromise, that kind of attitude. He wants reconciliation between the two people groups of his homeland. And when you think about, you know, the way he grew up and the people that he knew, it completely makes sense. But here's the complication with World War I. What are the Irish supposed to do? They want to rule themselves. They've uh, been promised that they're going to be given this opportunity with home rule, but now they've been told we're going to have to put that on hold and we'll get to it later. And we have a bigger problem. We can't deal with you all right now. So, oh, and by the way, uh, we need you to send your young men to fight in the war. The Irish are really in an existential double bind. Now they find themselves having to decide, do they fight for the British against the Germans or do they run the risk of Germany winning? I mean, many Irish are going to choose to fight with the British. Now, think about what what all this means. I mean, Christy, you have strong feelings about World War One. What do you think? I hate World War One. It's just the worst. Trenches, poisonous gas, trench foot, awful political propaganda, little children as young as 14 lying about their age and going to die in these awful trenches for reasons years later people really can't understand and explain very well. It's just awful. That's how I feel about <laughs> okay, it. Okay, <laughs> tell us how you really feel. You soft-pedaled it there. Well, it's sad. Anyway, I guess for the Irish, it means if they fight for the British... Maybe they'll earn the right to have some sort of independence. Yates believed that, and I use his words. He says, the British may still keep faith. And that is going to bring us to the year 1916, middle of the, of the war. Uh, the, the war has been going on for a while. Uh, in Ireland, there were basically two political parties, one for fighting for the British and another against them. There was an Irish militia, the volunteers, and of this group, there were the national volunteers and then the Irish volunteers. You can probably guess which one was for supporting a war and which one was more interested in creating a free state of Ireland. I'm going to say the Irish volunteers were interested in creating the free state. <laughs> yep, and I hope this isn't hard to follow, but here's what happened. So we have two groups of people. During the week of Easter, 1916, we have many of the Irish volunteers making the decision that they were going to take the opportunity that the British were distracted by the war and they were going to make a move to declare independence. So they picked Easter because of the idea of Jesus rising again and the Irish rising again. So 
about 1,600 people go downtown. They stage a rebellion. They take over a bunch of buildings and most prominently the post office. And they declare that Ireland is now a republic. And the British, of course, respond by bringing in troops. It gets violent. 485 people are killed, and half of those were civilians, and 1,800 are taken uh, to prison in Britain. It's a big riot, and for the most part, most Irish people really don't support the, the movement. However, the British make a terrible political mistake. They choose to execute 16 of the leaders of the rebellion. This caught everyone by surprise, and it really outraged the people of Ireland. Yates was in the outrage group. And it wasn't that he thought that what the rebels did was right, but he understood their frustration. And the English owed them something. They at least owed them some sympathy. Exactly. Uh, And the irony is not lost on anyone that during the same week in Hullock where they were fighting the Germans, the Germans had just released an extremely deadly poisonous gas attack on an Irish division of volunteers. And 442 had died just from the gas poisoning on the first day of the attack alone. And here's the personal connection. One of the men executed by the British for being a leader in the rebellion was Maud Gaughan's husband, McBride. Yates is very moved by everything. He's moved by the rebellion, and he's devastated by the response of the British in executing the rebel leaders. He says this in a letter to Lady Gregory. I had no idea that any public event could so deeply move me. He wasn't even in Ireland at the time. He further told her, I am very despondent about the future. At the moment, I feel that all the work of years has been overturned, all the bringing together of classes, all the freeing of Irish literature and criticism of politics. We're going to read this poem, and in it he's going to talk about four of the rebels that were in the uprising. A couple of them he liked. He hated McBride, not just because he took Maud gone, but because he physically beat her up, and he beat her daughter up, too. But since they were Catholic, she couldn't divorce him. McBride was clearly a horrible person, but it was somebody Yates knew. Dublin was a small town, and actually everyone probably knew everyone involved. When Yates writes at the end of the poem that all has changed changed utterly he means exactly that their thinking has changed there is no way to go back to where they were thinking like they were before indeed and the irish war for independence is going to start in 1919 and by december 6 1921 there is a free irish state completely free no more home rule the poem was not published for the masses until 1920 that's halfway between the war years it helps unify the Irish into really wanting independence. And he was a famous guy, so his support was important. He also made what happened on that Easter personal for everyone. What's interesting about the poem is he doesn't really try to make the people who were executed holy martyrs. He actually questions if what they did was even worth their lives. What they did, he's going to say, Maybe too fanatical. Maybe they should have done it. Maybe they shouldn't have done it. But it's over. And he says, I'm going to wear green. And what he means by that is I'm going to represent Ireland, the Emerald Island. 
So now that I hope we know a little bit about the history and the people involved in Yeats's personal connection, let's read the poem stanza by stanza. And we're not going to talk about the the rhyme scheme or anything like that. We're just going to talk about what each of the stanzas means. I've met them at close of day, coming with vivid faces from counter or desk among gray 18th century houses. I have passed with a nod of the head or polite, meaningless words, or have lingered a while and said polite, meaningless words, and thought before I had gone of a mocking tale or a jibe to please a companion around the fire at the club, being certain that they and I but lived where motley is worn. All changed, utterly changed, a terrible beauty is born. So the first thing I want us to notice that this is in the first person. I have met them. These were people that I knew before the war. And the and he's going to admit that for the most part, I didn't really think or care much a lot about these people. I passed them with a nod of a head, polite, meaningless words. He even had made fun of them. He says this, thought before I had done of a mocking tale or a jibe at the club. Maybe these were the people that were the radical, crazy people that you sit around and make fun of when you're talking about them to your friends. Notice that he throws in the word motley. Motley is what court gestures wear. The fools. These people were the clowns until all changed. Changed utterly. That's what he said. A terrible beauty is born. And it's that phrase, a terrible beauty, that has really stuck around. That's the phrase that President Joe Biden used and people love so much. It's an oxymoron. What does it mean? Well, what happened was terrible. The rebellion was terrible. But there was something beautiful in what these people stood for, what they were willing to sacrifice for, their ideals. There was honesty in it. It was virtuous in some way. Their death is giving life, again, to something that, is important to all of us. They were laughed at. They were gestures. They were fools. I thought they were, but then they were proven right. The other thing to point out is that in this first stanza, the actors are a comedy. We made fun of them. They were court gestures. But this comedy is getting ready to turn dark. And as we move through the stanzas, it's going to turn into tragedy. So let's read the second stanza. That woman's days were spent in ignorant goodwill, her nights in argument until her voice grew shrill. What voice more sweet than hers when young and beautiful she rode to Harriers? This man had kept a school and rode our winged horse. This other, his helper and friend, was coming into his force, and he might have won fame in the end, so sensitive his nature seemed, so daring and sweet his thought. This other man I had dreamed, a drunken, vainglorious lout, he had done most bitter wrong to some who are near my heart. Yet I number him in the song. He too has resigned his part in the casual comedy. He too has been changed in his turn, transformed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. So here we go. We had the comedy. And here are the four actors of the people that we're going to feature. These are four people that he knew that he chooses to highlight. Now, they're not the most important people in the rebellion. In fact, uh, most aren't significant rebels. But he picks them because these were four people that he had a real personal connection with. That woman. Well, that woman is Constance Markovich. 
She wasn't executed, but she was from Sligo. That's his hometown. He played with her when he was a kid. They were good friends, and she was a really good human. She was rich, born to privilege. She was actually the first woman to ever be elected to parliament. Later, she became the first woman in Europe to ever hold a cabinet position. But she was full of compassion, and at the time she died, she had given away her entire fortune and was living in a ward among poor people, which is exactly where she wanted to be. She was arrested, but she wasn't executed. Then we have this man. This man would be Patrick Peirce. He was an important leader, and he was executed. He was also a poet. Yates says that he rode that winged horse, that ringed horse's mythology, that's Pegasus, and he rides a, a pure white horse. He had started a school with his friend, which is the third reference, his helper and friend, Thomas McDowell. Pierce and McDowell started school. They were teachers there in Dublin, and Yates had been a guest lecturer for them in their school many times. He respected them. They were trying to rebuild a generation of Irish thinkers. So these were virtuous people. And of course, you get to this other man, John McBride, a lout. He was vainglorious, an abusive person who had done most bitter wrong to some who are near my heart, to use his words, But he still includes him here in his little list of the actors in this play that's going to go from casual comedy to sad and serious tragedy. Well, what I see, with the possible exception of McBride, these were good, sincere people that were targeted by the British and really not a bunch of thugs. I think that is why the miscalculation was such a bad idea. When we get to the third stanza, we start to see him turn a little more philosophical, a little more abstract, a little more symbolic. And this is where people get confused. Hearts with one purpose alone through summer and winter seem enchanted to a stone to trouble the living stream. The horse that comes from the road, the rider, the birds that range from cloud to tumbling cloud, minute by minute they change. A shadow of cloud on the stream changes minute by minute. A horse hoof slides on the brim and a horse splashes within it. The long-legged moorhens dive and hens to moorcocks call. Minute by minute they live. The stones in the midst of all. All right. (laughs) That stands is harder to follow, Christy. I know. One of the things that's so hard about Yates, and we're going to get into this a lot next week, is this idea that he holds symbols in such high regard. He thinks symbols are something that we can use to connect uh, to the other world, and they represent something deeper than any one thing. So uh, we're going to talk about this particular stanza is very symbolic. So what is a symbol and how do we know if something is a symbol or not? Yeah, that's a great question. And I tell students all the time, something might be a symbol if it kind of looks out of place. If something that shouldn't be so important is given a lot of importance, then it might be a symbol. So for example, if I'm an elegant model and everything I'm wearing is super expensive and fashionable, and then you look at my arm and I have around it a bracelet that's tattered, you know, oh, that's got to be a symbol of something or she wouldn't be wearing it. It's out of place. So when you see a stanza like this, 
you have to look for what is standing out. In this stanza, it starts out like we would expect. All the hearts of the people he'd been talking about had one purpose. Then he's going to connect this purpose to a stone. And it's not just going to be any stone. He connects it to enchanted to a stone. So what the heck does that mean? Well, for those of us who aren't Irish, it may mean nothing. But if you are Irish, you may know that one of the names of Ireland is the Island of the Stone of Destiny. Sounds like a great movie title. I'm sure it is. And if you know anything about Irish folklore, which Yates knew a lot about Irish folklore, you would know that one of the four sacred talismans of the Ghanistana is that the kings of Ireland were crowned upon this inauguration stone and their destiny was tied with magical powers to this stone. And you also know that sometimes the stone is enchanted, but sometimes the stone is fatal. Okay, so if the stone is symbolizing Ireland, what does the stanza mean then? I know. That's why ambiguous writing is difficult. You have to decide, and different people have said different things. What we know for sure is that we see that some things stay the same, like the rock. And if that's the symbol of Ireland, you can make a statement about the homeland. It's been there for a long time. It's not going anywhere. It survives. But look at all the things that pass over it, the living stream. And some of these things are fatal, too. So to be Irish is to have a deep heritage for all of its beauty and for all of its magic. It's not always a safe place. The stone troubling the living stream. But that's just my interpretation. Other people have said different things. That's what poetry is all about. Words bringing emotions to the surface and they can mean different things to different people. We get to the last stanza. It's less symbolic. It's less cryptic. He writes out people's names very specifically, but there are lots of other images, and some of them are also difficult to connect with. Let's read and finish out the poem. Too long a sacrifice can make a stone of the heart. Oh, when may it suffice? That is heaven's part, our part, to murmur name upon name as a mother names her child when sleep at last has come on limbs that had run wild. What is it but nightfall? No, no, not night, but death. Was it needless death after all? For England may keep faith for all that is done and said. We know their dream, enough to know they dreamed and they're dead. And what if excess of love bewildered them till they died? I write it out in a verse, McDonough and McBride and Connolly and Purse, now and in time to be, wherever green is worn, are changed, changed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. So here we're going to see a lot of rhetorical questions. He's asking the obvious question, is, is it worth it? Was what they did justified? Are there things that we shouldn't do, even if the cause is noble? He literally asks, was it needless death after all? The obvious political question, England may have kept the deal. We don't know that. He's going to say, did they love too much? Then he's going to immortalize those names. Kind of like saying, well, we'll never know. It's too late. The sacrifice is already made. And so they will be immortalized. Just so you know, Maud Gaunt absolutely hated this poem. (laughs) The poem was 
published originally just for his friends, and she got, of course, one of the earlier copies, and I want to read what she said. She said this, Easter 1916, no, I don't like your poem. It isn't worthy of you, and above all, it isn't worthy of the subject. Though it reflects your present state of mind, perhaps, it isn't quite sincere enough for you who have studied philosophy and know something of history. Know quite well that sacrifice has never yet turned a heart to stone, though it has immortalized many, and through it alone mankind can rise to God. You recognize this in the line which was the original inspiration of your poem, A Terrible Beauty is Born, but you let your present mood mar and confuse it till even some of the verses become unintelligible to many. She goes on and on, but then she gets to the part about her husband. I'm going to read that too. As for my husband, he has entered eternity by the great door of sacrifice which Christ opened and has therefore atoned for all, meaning all of his abuses. So that's a woman who... Didn't mind sharing her mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, most of the world disagrees with her and has found it worthy. I do want to uh, come around to just a couple more interesting quirks about the poem, but you're right. It, people have found it worthy. Uh, if you were to gray out the words and just look at the form of this poem as it appears on a page, you would notice maybe, now that I'm pointed out to you, that Yates deliberately wrote the poem to look like a broken column. It's skinny and the lines are short and fractured. And and I haven't done this, someone pointed this out to me. If you put the poem next to a picture of the shelled building on Sackville Street where the riot occurred, you would see that he kind of wrote it to model the the what is that called? The silhouette of the building. The poem was designed and constructed and written out physically to be a monument that outlives even the photograph of the scene that most of us will never see. And he did that on purpose. Yes. that's Sometimes that's why poets write in verse, so they can play around with the form as well as just the story. Another point to notice, he's going to sign and date the poem. But the date is weird, and it's not something that he did a lot. It's not the date of the rising. It's the date September 25th, 1916. Maybe that was the date he finished writing it. But the date of the uprising is actually encoded in the lines. Look how weird this is. There are four stanzas, the fourth month, April. The first and the third stanza have 16 lines. That's the year. The second and the fourth stanza have 24 lines. That's the date of the uprising. It's a strange way to date a poem. But the date of the event is embedded in the structure, but we also have a different date at the end. Gary, did anything interesting happen on that particular date, September 25? Um, well, I'm assuming you're meaning World War One, and uh, that date overlaps with a horrific battle of the Somme. I mean, in that battle alone, the British lost almost 500,000 young lives, and a lot of them were Irish, and I guess it's a final irony. And why did Yeats include the date when he usually didn't date his poems? I think most people would agree that it's a way of reminding his readers that here we are. It's not over yet. A terrible beauty has been born. I have written a monument for those who dreamed of a new Ireland. But this new Ireland will have to negotiate a new modern world order. It will not be a casual comedy. 
And no matter wherever you fall on the spectrum of the identity politics, those dying in the Somme or those dying in Dublin, he's going to say, we all should remember and we all should wear green. And of course, all of this during the Holy Week of Easter, 1916, nothing could be more ironic. Thanks for listening. Uh, I hope you enjoyed learning uh, a little of the history of Ireland uh, as it is personalized for us by the great William Butler Yeats. This episode, we looked at his most famous political poem, and next week we'll look at the poem that inspired the title for Things Fall Apart. So we look forward to it, and we hope you do too. And as always, text an episode to a friend, spread the word about the podcast. On your own social media, help us grow. Check us out at howtolovelitpodcast.com and all of our social media. Peace out. Secret to summer ready skin is here. Osea's number one best selling Andaria algae body oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.